Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we're going to study Zechariah chapter 4 this morning and make it through the chapter. So we're, we're covering some good ground here. We did, a, we did an entire chapter last week in chapter 3 and an entire chapter this week in chapter 4. And it's a little bit of a shorter chapter, so we should still get out of here on time. So just bear with me. Uh, this is a, probably one of the more difficult chapters, actually, in, in the book of Zechariah in terms of the vision that the Lord gives Zechariah in terms of the lampstand and the olive trees. And it's, it's an incredible vision. Uh, the Lord's got a lot for us through this, and so just hang with us. And as we always do, let's open up in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you would speak to us as we open up your word God, we pray that you would anoint this place with your Holy Spirit, and God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of Zechariah chapter 4. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather right here around your word and to strengthen ourselves and to put on the full armor of God as we go out and face this world and what the enemy would throw at us. God, give us the strength and the faith to stand for you in the days ahead. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you guys have all, how many of you have heard 1 John 2.27 before in your lives since you've been here? Yeah, a lot, I'm, I'm sure. So you, you get it. Uh, lean on the Holy Spirit to teach you everything, and that's what we're going to do here in Zechariah chapter 4 as we're, as we're unpacking God's word here. But as a reminder on this timeline, you know, it's, it's amazing how so much of the Bible, 77% of the Bible is the Old Testament by word count. And when you go from creation up until the time of Jesus, when he stepped foot on the earth the first time, that's, that's 77% of God's word. Now, if you hold up the Bible, too, and you, and you just pick up from Acts 2 to Revelation 3, and you hold that up in your Bible, that, those, that is the amount of the scripture that's dedicated to the church, to us today. Isn't that amazing? And the rest of it all deals with Israel. And on this timeline, Zechariah was a prophet that God raised up in the post-exile period. So the children of Israel did not listen to the, to the, to the Lord. They, were, they did not obey his word for 490 years. Remember, they were supposed to till the land for six years, let it rest the seventh. And they didn't do that for 490 years. And so they did not let the land rest for 70 years. And as a result, God took them into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. And he connects that reason as to the time frame of their captivity, 70 years. And he even tells them, so that the land can enjoy her Sabbaths for 70 years. Now, they're in exile. Cyrus conquers Babylon. He gives them financial incentives to go rebuild their temple, which is in the book of Ezra. They go and they start to rebuild the temple. They're very spiritually immature, and they don't get very far. It stalls. 
And so he raises up Haggai as a prophet in the land to encourage the people to finish rebuilding the temple. But after his message closes, Haggai just disappears. So God then raises up Zechariah a few months later to encourage them to press on to spiritual maturity so they can finish the temple. So that's Zechariah's mission. He's a post-exile prophet raised up in a time when the nation was trying to get back to their relationship with God, but they were very spiritually immature. Okay, does that sound familiar today in the nation in which we live? We live in a nation that right now is going one of two ways. You have a nation that's teetering on either falling into vast, deep spiritual immaturity as a whole and staying there, or one that's going to tilt the other way and turn back to God and repent, and God's going to continue using the United States as, as the last beacon of light to the world. And that, that is totally dependent on what you in this room, if you're a born-again, spirit-filled believer, what you do. And that promise is from 2 Chronicles 7.14, that if my people, God says. So it's not dependent on how many of the lost uh, heathens get saved, right? It's dependent on what do the born-again, spirit-filled believers do? Do we repent, fast, pray, and seek his face? And if we do, he promises to heal our land. And so Zechariah is not just for, this whole book is not just for an ancient group of people that has a series of customs and, and sacrifices to God that you and I don't understand. This book is for us today very much so. Okay, because it's, it's probably the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. It introduces Jesus as the branch, and we covered that last week in Zechariah 3, verse 8. So check on that one. Remember, God uses the branch in four different ways throughout the Bible linked to Jesus, linked to the four Gospels. And we looked through that last week. But the Lord's going to speak of the stone with seven eyes, which links to Revelation. We looked at that last week. His throne, Jesus the Nazarene. We looked at that last week. Sorry, my check marks are off on the slide a little bit for some reason. The king riding on the donkey is Zechariah 9.9. The shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and actually what they do with the money. We're going to cover that in this book. Jesus being pierced, that's in Zechariah 12. His return in power, destroying his enemies in Zechariah 14. All of this speaks of Jesus, this entire book from cover to cover. It's incredible. So if you look at our outline of where we've been, Zechariah chapter 1, 1 through 6 is the call to repentance. And it was how God wanted to start out the book that you people, you, you Israel, you need to repent and start getting, getting serious about your walk with the Lord. Because you need to grow spiritually and dedicate and surrender your lives to me so that I can finish the work I started in you. That's what he's trying to call them to do. So then Zechariah gets 10 visions all in one night. And some people classify them as eight. Some people classify them as 10. I've got them listed at 10 just so you can see each one of them. But they, they're all in one night from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 15. And so, so far we've covered the riders under the myrtle trees, the four horns, the four carpenters, the man with the measuring line, Joshua and Satan. We started that last week. Remember Yehoshua? It's a variant form of the name of Jesus. And the Lord actually uses the branch from that chapter as the prophecy from Isaiah to say that Jesus would be a Nazarene. We looked at that last week. 
the branch, and then today, we're going to start in chapter 4, he gets the vision of the lampstand and the two olive trees, okay, and then it goes down from there. The four chariots in chapter 6 finish his visions. Okay, in chapter 4 here, the Lord is going to give Zechariah a vision of the seven-branch candlestick with two olive trees, and when you read it on the surface, I know you're sitting there going, what in the world is God talking about? And why is this important to me as a Holy Spirit-filled believer in the church today? There's a lot of deep lessons out of this chapter, actually. So I think you'll get a lot out of this. Just So make sure you drink your extra cup of coffee. Stay awake. Uh, let's, let's be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We're going to dig into this. But the it's a link to the tabernacle and to Solomon's temple, okay? The olive, the, the olive oil was to be pressed and beaten and then poured into the menorah so that the light of the, of the menorah would burn continually, okay? The, and in order to do that, for it to burn and to, bear, to be a light bearer, it had to be crushed, okay? So you can already start to see some of the symbolism, um, Jesus, obviously, had to be crushed to give the Holy Spirit. All through the Bible, how is the Holy Spirit related to? It's oil. Okay, so think about that. It also has to do with us as living sacrifices for God. You and I have to lay our lives down to Jesus so that why? You can be a light bearer to this world. Okay, if you don't do that, you don't bear much light. You'll snuff it out. So there are a lot of natural implications for us today as the church. Now, seven times in the New Testament, God declares that you are the temple of God. You are, right now. Seven times. And that's, there's a reason. Seven is always the number of what God does on behalf of man. So six is the number of man. Seven is the number of perfection of what God does on behalf of man. Eight is the number of new beginnings. That's why Noah and and the seven other people, eight of them were on the ark. It was the number of new beginnings. So you can track those down in the Bible. God uses numbers very specifically. But seven times, you are the temple of God, and you are the first, the first body that God has created since Adam and Eve to walk around with the Holy Spirit indwelling you permanently. You have that privilege, and it's a unique privilege that you enjoy as the church. So just keep in mind you have the most esteemed privilege of any other believer to ever walk on the face of the planet. It's amazing. Okay, the vessel by which the Holy Spirit dwells for the purpose of bringing forth continual light to the world then is you. Okay, so right now while we're in this period of time where the temple's destroyed, although it's getting ready to be rebuilt, we looked at that when we studied prophecy all throughout the Bible before uh, Nahum, but you right now then are the temple because it's destroyed. And so you're bearing that light of the Holy Spirit walking around. Okay, to start on verse 1 here. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. Okay, remember the Lord connects all of these visions with that Hebrew connective in, in the English translation. It's and, so and, and, and. It's the Lord just connecting all of those. And he said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold. Now that word candlestick 
in, in Hebrew is actually better translated lampstand. Okay, and that's how you'll see it in some of your translations, especially in the book of Revelation. When you see Jesus in chapter one with the seven golden lampstands standing before him, okay, and he's in the midst of them. Well, then the rapture takes place in chapter four, verse one, and where are those lampstands? They're on the earth in chapter one. Well, chapters four and five, before the tribulation, they are in heaven before God's throne. And God tells you in chapter one that those represent the church. So it's just another clue. God puts these clues all throughout the Bible that the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. Okay, this, this lampstand all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Okay, if you look at the menorah, it's a seven-branch candlestick and the Temple Institute, the picture on the left is the one that the, the Temple Institute has rebuilt for the future temple that will be rebuilt that the Antichrist desecate, desecrates. Uh, excuse my, <laughs> he, he will probably do that too, but he will desecrate this temple. And he's going to step into the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be God from 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, you see that in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. Daniel 9 prophesies from the abomination of desolation to the end when Jesus returns in the tribulation at the very end in Revelation 19, it will be 1,260 days, three and a half years, or 42 months. And remember, God always uses 360 days on his calendar in the Bible. It's, it's very different than our calendar of 365 and a quarter days. So don't let that confuse you. When you're studying Bible prophecy, you have to use 360-day years or else you'll be off on everything. Okay, the Temple Institute, they have built this menorah on the left. It's a lot of gold. It's huge. This thing's probably worth about 11 to $13 million, depending on the spot price of gold. Okay, that's how much they spent to build this. You can see on the right, from the Old Testament, you had the flowers, the knobs, and three cups, and then the knobs, the flower, knob, cup, flower, and then the, the stand at the bottom. And so what they would do is the oil, they had to press these olives to make olive oil, and they would pour it in continually. The priest had to go in to not the Holy of Holies, the holy place, okay, which is before the veil. So remember, you could only go into the Holy Holies once a year, and only the high priest could go in after the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. Remember, he had to go through all that ceremonial ritual and cleansing, wear the special garb, that put on the ephod, all of that, and go in to make propitiation for the sins of the people of Israel. The holy place outside of the veil is where the menorah, and to the right of it, if you're looking at the menorah, it'd be on the right, is where the table of showbread was. Twelve loaves, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, changed every Shabbat on a Saturday, on the, on the day of rest. Okay, so they had to go in daily and refill it with olive oil so it would never burn out. That was, that was the goal. Now, the menorah, though, is very different than the, the, what you see during Hanukkah at Christmas. That's a totally different candlestick. The Hanukkah candlestick has eight or nine branches, depending on which one you see, and oftentimes they put the Star of David on it, if, you, if you're familiar with that. It's on the flag of Israel right now, the Star of David. It's the Magan David. 
Okay, on the left, you'll see they have it even on menorah with a cross, uh, one of them. You can find these all over the internet. You can look up these pictures of what it looks like. But the menorah and the thing you see during around Christmas time, Hanukkah, is very different. Hanukkah was a celebration, and it's only actually referenced one time in the entire Bible. It's in the book of John, when they rededicate the temple, and it was winter. And the temple dedication never occurred in the winter. You have to go and track that down. It's when the Maccabees revolted against the Roman Empire, and they, and they out of that, they dedicated a holiday called Hanukkah. Okay, so it's, it's two different things. But in any case, I want you to see that so it's not confusing. Now, when you look at the Magin David, the shield of David, it's, it's curious. It was adopted as a national sign of Israel around the 14th century AD. And it has six points, six sides, and six triangles. So it's not a great number <laughs> according to, to God. In fact, 666 is only used as the mark in Revelation 13.8 and as a, a portion of Solomon's gold. Uh, it's funny, the only other place in the whole Bible you can find 600, three score, and six is when the Lord is piecing out Solomon's salary, and he says, he got all of this gold, but some of it, 600, three score, and six came by ship every, every year to him. And it's so curious that God, of all the gold Solomon was getting, he carves out a portion and describes it as 606 and 6. And it's just a, it's a weird link. And the way the Lord, uh, the Lord actually has a message for Israel on that during the tribulation. But it's the shield of David, they can't find a link to it to Israel before the 14th century. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. The symbol was actually the one on the right, on the bottom right, was the seal of Solomon, and he used two equilateral triangles, but he had them kind of interwoven where it looked like they were laid together. And he used that some as a symbol. Now, it was adopted and picked up by the occult. Actually, you can find this in a lot of ancient writings. They took it and tried to corrupt it because they believed Solomon's providential wisdom was so great, they would use that knowledge and you can find in a, in a lot of ancient Renaissance magic and occultic books, they try to use Solomon's seal as a way of, of paganism and occultic black magic. And of course, everything that Satan does is a counterfeit, so it's no surprise, right? They, they would try to adopt something from God and change it. And you even see that with the cross, right? They, they turn the cross upside down as if Jesus, was, his finished work on the cross wasn't strong enough. So... Anyway, I just wanted to show you the difference there between the shield of David, the Magin David, and the seal of Solomon. Okay, the children of Israel, they were to keep the lampstand burning continuously. Okay, and the priesthood was to supply that lampstand daily. And this is all in Exodus 27, 20, and 21. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, behind the veil, or in front of the veil, I should say, which is before the testimony, the testimony of the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his son shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. Now keep in mind too, we talked about 360 day years, on, the, on God's calendar, the next day starts at sundown. 
That's how the Jews track their days. That's why the evening and the morning were day one, the evening and the morning were day two in Genesis. And remember, that's all linked to uh, chaos to order. It's not really 24-hour. He's not referring to evening to to morning as a full day because that's only half a day. But the lampstand that Zacharias sees is quite different than this one. It's not fed with olive oil manually. It's fed by these two olive trees standing by it. Okay, so the one that the children of Israel maintained in the tabernacle and in the temple, they had to maintain it manually, daily. It was a continual light of burning by works. Okay, do you see the the difference? Okay, Zacharias, it's burning by olive trees that are continually pouring oil into it. Okay, there is a golden bowl, this is what Zacharias sees, on top of this lampstand, that's back in verse 2. The oil would go from the bowl through the pipes by gravity, and from the bowl there were actually seven pipes to each of the seven lampstands. So in the Hebrew, it actually implies that there are 49 pipes. It's seven of sevens, so seven times seven. So seven pipes times seven lampstands, seven pipes per lampstand. And oil throughout the Bible always represents the Holy Spirit. This lampstand was overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And so for us today, a challenge question for all of us is, how are you fed? You know, how are you fed today as the church? As the Holy Spirit's indwelling you, are you trying to feed yourself manually? Okay, think back to Cain and Abel. Remember Cain brings an offering of the, of the field, and Abel brings an offering of the flock, of the firstlings of the flock. Now, why did God accept Abel's offering? Well, because it wasn't his works. He had nothing to do with the birth of that baby ewe lamb and then going and slaughtering it on the altar for God. Okay, Cain, on the other hand, tried to bring the work of his hands, the work of the field, He was trying to bring his works before God and let his works be his righteousness and the sacrifice to the Lord. And that's why God rejected his offering because it's only by the shedding of innocent blood and the work of Jesus that any of us can be covered. And so how are you fed? The same thing's true today. Are you trying to grow spiritually in your sanctification process by your works? Are you trying to feed yourself with something that you're toiling over? Okay, just think about that. You need to be fed by the outpouring of the oil of the Holy Spirit, and you only do that by getting into the Word of God. And you only do that by opening up the Bible and sitting and letting the Holy Spirit overflow out of you and wash away anything in your life that you've been holding on to. That's how you get fed And that's how you are a candle, a lampstand, walking around, burning continually. That's the goal for all of us. So, and when you do that, God's going to give you some revelation. He's going to teach you. He's going to give you understanding of the scriptures. And what you do with that then will dictate how much more happens in your life. Because look at Matthew 13, 12. This is a promise by Jesus. For whosoever hath to him shall be given and shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, 
from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Okay, so your response to truth, what you do with it when you're studying the word of God, is going to dictate how much more and, and deeper in your walk you get with him. You know, it's oftentimes, how many of you are, get frustrated, you know, if you, if you have a relationship with someone and you're trying like crazy to build this relationship with this person and there's no response, you know, they're just, they're just oblivious, they're silent, they don't respond to text messages, they don't call, you know, whatever it is, and you're sitting there going, you know, I just don't know what is up with Chris. He just will not get back to me. And, and you're sitting there going, what happened to him? Like, I, we were in fellowship, we were doing all these things, and next thing you know, lights off. You know, how much of a relationship will you have after a year of that, after two years of that? three years of that. Just think about that. That's how God is with you. And to build the relationship with him, you have to open up his word. You have to get to know him. You have to let him wash over you and pour into your life and renew your mind from Ephesians with the outpouring of the word of God. And let, and then be a welcome vessel for more oil so that you can continue to burn and be a lampstand walking around this world in a, in a very dark place, right? Acts 2, 16 through 21, remember they link the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from Joel. Remember, but this is that, it's actually from Joel chapter 2, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church is formed, and it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, they're linking it to Joel as this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and these mighty moves of God that you're going to experience as the church. You're going to have visions and see dreams. God's going to speak to you personally. Okay, let's, let's be obedient and let the Holy Spirit do that in our lives and not try to snuff it out. Oil is a source of light. It illuminates. It soothes. You know, my, my wife strongly believes in essential oils, and they, they do soothe, and she, she'll, she's got a, a solution for anything, so go talk to her. It'll heal. It's warming. It abolishes friction. So if you have friction in a relationship, what happens? You add the Holy Spirit in there, the friction's gone, right? It polishes how many of you, if you've got a dirty piece of silver or something from a gift or an antique, you get oil and it polishes it. It wipes all of that away and it reflects something beautiful. The light shines off of it. Oil's amazing. That's why God's using that as an idiom for the Holy Spirit. It does all of that. It takes away so much. Okay, in verse three here, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. So you can hear Zechariah. He's looking at these two big olive trees, and he's, and he's asking the angel, Hey, what are these? And the angel's going, You should know. Don't you have your Bible? You should know what these are. And Zechariah's going, Look, I have no clue what these are. I need you to tell me what they are. And then he answered and spake unto me, 
This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now remember, Zerubbabel is the governor. He went back after Cyrus, and he was the governor of Israel responsible to try to rebuild the temple. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, and this is one of my favorite quotes that New City Worship sings about, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Note that this lampstand is fed from two olive trees. It's not fed manually by the priesthood. And God is saying it is fed not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay, so God, he's actually using a play on words here. It's how Zerubbabel was going to finish the temple, not by might nor by power. It's a word to Zerubbabel. It's also a word to how the lampstands are being fed, not by might, not manually. You're not crushing a bunch of olives. I'm feeding it by the spirit of the living God, says God, says the Lord. And the goal for you and I is for that same thing. Anything you put your hand to as a believer You want to make sure you're putting your hand to it, not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of the living God. Because when you do that, it's not work. It's it's enjoyment. It's peace. You get to walk according to your call that God has uniquely equipped you for. Remember what Jesus said when he wanted to take that yoke off of them? And he said, put on my yoke. It's easy. It's light. It's, and actually in the Greek, what he's saying is, it is uniquely fit and tailored to fit how I created you. It's not something that's a burden. It's not something that you'll get tired in the field of wearing. It's something that I will put on you, and you'll walk by my strength and by my power and by my might. And so the goal for all of us is to get to that place where you have, you have taken the yoke that you've been trying to carry around on you, that the world says who you are, the world says you need to be doing this, the world says this is how you're successful in the eyes of the world. You take that yoke and you cast it aside and you let Jesus put his on you because all of a sudden everything gets unlocked at that point. You're walking in a sense of strength you've never had before. You're walking in a sense of peace that you could not imagine previously You're walking in a sense of provision that is supernatural from the Lord in everything you do in your life. That's the yoke that you need to put upon yourself. And that's the goal for all of us. Okay, we're going to get back to these two olive trees here in a minute. But then he answered and spake unto me, remember, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Okay, this is a title of Jesus here, saith the Lord of hosts. Now remember what in Joshua 5 when Joshua comes to the man with his sword drawn, they're, they're about to surround and encamp around uh, Jericho. And Joshua sees someone in Joshua 5 with his sword drawn. And he goes to him and he says, hey, are you with us or for our enemies? And the man with his sword drawn says, nay, so I am not for you or your enemies. But as the captain of the Lord's hosts, I have come. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And it's Jesus with his sword drawn. And Joshua remembers exactly where he'd heard that before. And it was Moses in the burning bush. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. 
And Jesus with his sword drawn is the one that then goes and conquers Jericho. And he says, the captain of the Lord's hosts. That's the same title right here, saith the Lord of hosts. It's got a very strong meaning. The Lord which goes forth of army to war, to make warfare of hosts, or the host of organized armies of the sun, moon, and stars of whole creation. Now, isn't that interesting? Of sun, moon, and stars, he is the God of the sun, moon, and stars. And it's amazing how in ancient Babylon, they, tr- they tried to create false gods, right? Worship the sun god, worship the moon god, uh, worship the stars with the zodiac. Now, today we call it the zodiac, but it's a twist of the Hebrew Matzeroth. It's the 12 constellations, uh, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the, the occultics and the, the sorcerers all twisted that, right, back in ancient days in Babylon. Okay, when Jesus, though, comes back at the end of the tribulation, who follows him? We talked about this in Zechariah chapter 1 with the, the rider on the red horse. But in Revelation 19, 4, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Remember, that's you and I. We're raptured. We're in heaven during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, we're in the throne room of the universe. Jesus comes forward, takes the scroll. We're all worshiping him. He unleashes the seven seals. The tribulation unfolds. And then in, in Revelation 19, we come back with him, and he calls us the armies, the armies which were in heaven. It's amazing. And the Lord of the armies You know, the question is, do you see yourself as called to active duty in the army of God? And active duty means you're not idle. You don't sit back. You take orders from one, right? The one that's in charge, and that's Jesus. And to do that, also, you have a certain uniform you have to wear, right? Some of you served in the military. Um, You wore wore fatigues or, or, or... certain officer uniforms and badges and uh, camo and things like that. That's how you were identified, right? The same is true with us. To be identified as a Christian, remember Jesus has a change of garments for you we talked about last week. And when you walk around in those clean white garments, unblemished, people take note and they see that you're different. Okay, in verse seven, who, who art thou, O gray mountain? This is God asking a sarcastic question. Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. Now, this is a very curious verse because before Zerubbabel, there was a mountain. Now, we know that Jesus will reign from Mount Zion during the millennial reign of Christ. Apparently, when he sets up his throne on Mount Zion, the rest of Judea becomes a plain, It becomes flat, and the reason is so that you, anywhere you are in the land, you can look and see where Jesus is sitting, and that's a, it's referenced right here in Zechariah 4, 7, that's going to become a plain, and he's going to reign on Mount Zion, and you see this link in Revelation 16, verse 20, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. So remember, during the tribulation, Something happens that the mountains are no longer found and the islands flee away. Now, you can get into a study of what is that about from a physics standpoint. 
personally, this is just my speculation. Chris always wants to make sure I say, you've got to search this out and see for yourself. And to put a little disclaimer, I need a, like a light or something that whenever Matt is giving you his opinion, I can click the light and everybody doesn't get offended if, if what I say is not true. Because that's, that's, we all got to go search the scriptures, right? And make sure this is true. But during the days of Noah, you know, the earth was not tilted at 23 and a half degrees on its axis. It was straight up and down. It was perpendicular. That's why there is a universal temperature on the earth. That's why they found woolly mammoths who had tropical vegetation in their mouth frozen in the ice caps, right, today. It's because they were, it was a universal, global, glorious temperature that God set up. Uh, the way it was tilted during Noah's day, part of the the flood event wasn't just rain pouring out on the earth. God actually moved the earth and tilted it. And you can see this uh, referenced in Isaiah and other, a few other places that he's going to do it again. He's going to take the earth out of her place. Now, it's a very curious link because in Matthew 24, Jesus makes reference that during the tribulation, it shall be as the days of Noah again. Well, as the days of Noah, what's going to happen? There'll be a pole shift again. And God references that in Isaiah, as I mentioned, that he will literally move the earth out of her place. So if it's tilted on its axis, imagine the God of the universe during the tribulation taking the earth and just moving it again. And it's probably going to wobble around in space, and you'll have the sun come up for a second, then the moon will shine maybe for days on end, then the sun will come up again. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 24 says, during the tribulation of that time, no man shall know the day nor the hour because time won't exist. You'll, you'll it'll exist, but you won't know what time it is. And that's why the Antichrist in Daniel 7 seeks to change times and seasons. He tries to institute a calendar during that time. This is all my speculation, but I think it's awesome to think about. But when he moves it out of his place, think about the tectonic plates all of them, the shear force would be so massive that the earth would just become flat again. And I think that's what God is talking about in Revelation 16, 20, that when the mountains and the islands flee away, so the, the earth will just become flat like that. And there'll be one mountain that Jesus rules from, and it's Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And I think that's pretty incredible. Okay, but the Father here, back to verse 7 in Zechariah 4, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof. Now, who is the headstone of the corner? Right, it's Jesus. We all know that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner, shouting grace, grace unto it. Now, just a note, because you might be confused on this, grace versus mercy. Now, grace is receiving that which you do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving that which you do deserve. Okay, do you see the difference? Grace is you and I are getting something that we don't deserve at all. Mercy is we are not getting something that we deserve abundantly. And what you and I deserve that we are not getting is eternal separation from God. That's his mercy, and we are saved by grace. We are getting something that we don't deserve we are getting, by grace, we are saved through faith, and we get eternal life from Jesus. Grace shows up 170 times in the Bible. And in the book of Revelation, it's curious that it only shows up once in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, 
and it doesn't show up again until the very last verse of the Bible. Because a lot of people call the church the age of grace. Well, that age of grace closes in the rapture, and Jesus establishes then the millennium and then eternity. Okay, verse 8 here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. So God's prophesying that Zerubbabel started the temple. He's going to finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. There's that title of Jesus again. The Lord of the organized armies of heaven. Think about it that, that way from now on. So despite the delay due to spiritual immaturity, Zerubbabel would finish what God had him begin. And the same is true in your life if you will just press on. God will finish a work that he started in you. You know, a lot, I know a lot of you have shared with me in the past, actually, things that God has laid on your heart 20, 10, 20, 30 years ago that now he's bringing back and telling you to go finish this. I put something in you to do, and I want you to finish it. And that's from Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the day of Jesus Christ is a unique day. It's not the day of the Lord. The day of Jesus Christ is when you and I are raptured and we stand before the Bema seat of, of Jesus where he gives us our rewards for faithful service. That's all from 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 10 through 15, I believe. The day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord, if you just study, if just look up in your Bible someday on Blue Lara Bible, type in the day of Jesus Christ and then type in the day of the Lord and write down the attributes of the two. They're vastly different. The day of the Lord is a day of mourning and weeping. It's a day of when Jesus comes back in Armageddon and judges the earth, right? It's the day of the Lord. It's a day of gloominess and darkness all, from, all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, in verse 10 here, we're almost finished, so hang with me. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth, Remember last week we looked at the stone with seven eyes, speaking of Jesus from Revelation 4 and 5 as the lamb that was slain with seven eyes and seven horns, always speaking of authority. That's from Revelation 1. Isaiah 11, 2 speaks of the seven spirits of God. So there's a link there. But another question for all of us, you know, is your heart found perfect toward the Lord? And if it is, Look at 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And he's speaking, of course, to the children of Israel because their heart was not perfect toward God. How do you make your heart perfect toward God? Remember, what did God say about David? He's a man after God's own heart. Okay, David had the stance that no matter how bad he messed up, he was on his knees running back to God. That's how you make your heart perfect toward God. You have to have a heart of complete repentance that you want nothing more than to be in fellowship and as close as possible with God. Solomon was quite the contrary 
despite as much as he sinned and messed up and multiplied wives, wealth, and horses, which he wasn't supposed to do any of the three, he was stubborn and rejected God constantly. Okay, that's, and then Jesus obviously has some very bad things to say about Solomon in the New Testament. So if your heart is perfect toward the Lord, his eyes run to and fro throughout the entire world. Okay, in verse 11 here. And you know those eyes, just as a side note, those eyes are looking for you and, they're, and they are locked on you. Okay, just think about that. Think about the God of the universe who spoke all of this into existence. His word is holding you together right now, the very molecules you'll, you are made up of in this physical reality and his eyes are fixated and he is obsessed with you. Just think about that. Isn't that amazing? There is nothing, nothing sweeter Okay, then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees? Great question. Upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. And I answered again, again and said unto him, so Zechariah asked the question, he gets no response. And I answered again and said unto him, hey, what be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, said Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones. So finally, Zechariah gets an answer. These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, the link of the two olive branches to close us out. It's only found one other place in the entire Bible. And as a lesson for all of us, I want you to remember the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. It's the best commentary on the whole Bible you can ever pick up is the Bible. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, Revelation, it consists of 404 verses with over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. And everything in Revelation is explained somewhere else in the Bible. That's one of the reasons why it's such a rewarding book to study. But God discusses something very peculiar in chapter 11, the two witnesses. And let's just read this in chapter 11, verse 1. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Another reason why you know the temple will be standing during the tribulation. And the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. There's that time frame again from the abomination and desolation to the end. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. Now it's interesting; they're clothed in sackcloth, which is another sign of Old Testament law, not grace. That's one of the, uh, just a subtle reason why you know the church is gone. Okay, look what God says though in verse four. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. They have four powers. Two Moses did in the Old Testament and two that Elijah did in the Old Testament. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them 
and shall overcome them and kill them. Overcome them, that Greek word is the same word that Jesus promised to you and I as the church, that the gates of hell will not overcome the church, shall not overtake the church. It's another reason why you know these two witnesses are not a part of the church. There's something very, very different. Okay, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. In case you didn't get it, it's Jerusalem. And they have the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the grave. So they're going to celebrate the death of these two witnesses. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another. It's the only time celebrations happening in the tribulation is when these two guys are finally killed because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Can you imagine being somebody that's on the earth during this time? The raptures happened. All of this craziness is unleashed on the earth. Finally, these two witnesses are killed. They lay dead in the streets for three and a half days, and they're celebrating. Finally, we took out these guys that are prophets from God. They've been shutting heaven. They've been causing droughts. They've been causing plagues. They've turned water to blood. And then finally, they stand up. They stand up. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon them. I can imagine. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they sent it up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They're going to watch them just beamed right up to heaven. It's incredible. So these two witnesses. Now, if you look in the Bible, there's, when Jesus showed up the first time, the Israelites were looking for three people. In the book of Malachi, God promises that he will send Elijah before that great and dreadful day. They also asked Jesus, if that he was Moses, he, they said, are you that prophet from Deuteronomy 18? And they were looking, um, they were looking for the Messiah. Uh, I'm sorry, they're looking for John the Baptist, the forerunner. So they're looking for three different people. And Jesus obviously said, no, I'm not any of those people. But Elijah and Moses are two of the Old Testament prophets whose ministries were never completed. They were never finished. Uh, God took them home early, uh, both of them for different reasons. Elijah, because he sat in a cave and <clears throat> whined to God that he was the only one left doing his work. And God right then said, hey, your ministry's done. You're not the only one. I've got 7,000 still in Jerusalem doing my work. You're going to pass your mantle on to Elisha, and I'm going to bring you home. Same with Moses. Moses he was supposed to strike the rock the first time, the water pour out. The second time, remember, he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he was so frustrated, the children of Israel, and so mad in his short temper, he struck it again. And he wasn't supposed to do that. And God said, no, you're supposed to speak to it. Because you struck it, your ministry is over. I'm going to take you up to the Mount Nebo. You're going to see the Holy Land, but you will never enter into it. And I'm going to take you home. Now, Moses was supposed to model the first and second coming of Christ with that, those events. The first time Christ would be struck, 
and pour out the water of the living God, the Holy Spirit, to us, the second time when he comes back, he speaks and his enemies are destroyed. That's what Moses was supposed to do. So their ministries ended. And it's my, again, my personal speculation, uh, turn the, the light on, uh, but those two witnesses are likely Moses and Elijah because the children of Israel are, are looking for them to come back. They have a ministry that's unfinished. All of their miracles from the Old Testament are those that the two witnesses replicate during the tribulation. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, some people think it was e- one of them is Enoch, uh, but Enoch was not a Jew. He was raptured before the flood of Noah representing the church. Uh, the Jews weren't formed until Abraham, so you got to keep that in mind too. You know, but Moses and Elijah, members of the army of God, when they come back, and you are a part of the army of God, and you have a ministry that you want to make sure is not short-circuited, that's not finished early. You know, some of you may be thinking, well, well Matt, what's my ministry? I don't know. Ask God. But you have a ministry. It could be to witness to a neighbor. It could be to witness in your place of work, employment. It could be to be a prayer warrior in your closet where nobody sees what you do but the God of the universe whose eyes are upon you. It may be that simple, but there's a need for it. And so whatever it is, don't discount that whatever God has for you, it's specific. It's his call. It's how he wants to equip you and he wants you to finish strong because you're, you're in an army. And we are, in case you haven't noticed, we are in a war. It's no longer, hey, it's just the world and we're just kind of Christians going through it and life's great and cheery and happy. It's, we are now in a place for about the past three and a half years, you could actually say even longer than that, that Christianity is under attack. The Christianity that, that you and I walk, the God of the Bible is under attack deeply. And you may not see it so much here within the state of Oklahoma, but you get outside of this state and these walls and go to either coast and even I would say to any other country, and it's true. Um, It's coming to the shores of America and you and I have a responsibility to be praying against it. So we've got to press on in our call that God has for us so that like Leviticus 20, the land does not spew you out. And you do that by being surrendered to God, putting on the proper attire to serve in his army, and fulfilling a ministry and a call that he has on your life. And if any of you are here and you don't know the Lord, let's take care of that today. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. Do that today and get right with God. And take your forever place as being born again, because once you are born again, you can never be unborn. And it's so simple and it's so beautiful that Jesus, his finished work on the cross is sufficient to save you from all of your sin for eternity. You you cannot add anything to it. And if you do, it's blasphemous because Jesus, he is sufficient. It's not him and and a lot of other things. It's Jesus. And so if you need to do that today, come and see one of us. Let's get, let's get saved. Lord, I just thank you so much for this time together. I thank you, God, that we can gather right here around your word, Lord, to be equipped for the days ahead. And God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon this place. 
God, I pray that you, Lord, would give us discernment and wisdom and direction in all things, and that, God, you would be with us in the days ahead, that, Lord, we would find ourselves, we would find ourselves deep in your word and being worthy of the call that you have on our lives. And we thank you so much that, Jesus, your eyes run to and fro looking, looking for us and that you search out the entire universe trying to find us. God, we love that. And we pray that, Lord, we would stand up and heed the call that you have on our lives in this time. We love you, and we thank you again for this time together. Be with us as we leave this place, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.